Henry Roy watched as the alderman went over the letter again. He was a massive man, Alderman Bratner, with at least three chins. The highest chin was set with stubble, and the third met at a yellow, sweat-stained collar. Bratner's beady black eyes gleamed dully against his pale flesh. He looked unhealthy, Emery thought, like a lifelong drinker. Bratner's cheeks were etched with broken blood vessels, and the papery bags beneath his eyes were an old parchment yellow. But living in Barnett, drink was bound to be one of the only methods of escape. Having been here only a few hours, the young bard had already seen a man shot, been splattered by the forcefully exiting dung of a passing cow, and had nearly been run over by an errant carriage. Bratner laughed shortly through his nose, and then flicked a glance black up at Emery. "'The queen sent you here, Avery?' He had said this already once, but apparently a second time was necessary. "'Yes, sir, and it's Emery?' "'Emery Roy,' Emery said, mustering a faint smile. With Bratner's laugh had come a gassy cloud of halitosis-ridden breath, which added nothing to the man's overall presence. "'A bard!' Bratner had already made this astute observation before. Emery cringed inwardly and nodded. "'To Barnett?' "'Yes, sir. Uh, actually, a bard and apprenticeship were assigned to towns like Barnett, sometimes in the territories or the isles, to hone our craft and, and learn the songs of the people,' Emery explained. Bratner laughed again, more fully this time. The force of the laugh, however, exceeded the capacity of the man's lungs, and it ended in a sickly wheeze. "'Well, then the queen must have a sense of humor, or she must not like you much. We ain't never had a bard in Barnett, not since records were kept at any rate. And most of the songs the locals sing revolve around one common theme. The alderman cupped his hands high on his chest and jiggled them in a gross parody of a woman's assets. Emery swallowed on a dry throat. He hadn't expected a fanfare of welcome upon arrival, but he had thought that most of the towns in the territories at least made a show of official heraldic common courtesy, if only as an excuse for public display by local authorities. But from what he had seen so far, Barnett was mostly populated by a ragtag collection of rough and degraded men, many of whom seemed to spend large amounts of their day in various states of inebriation and hangover. They had been completely uninterested in his requests for directions to the alderman's quarters. He doubted they would be interested in listening to his songs. One man had spit on him, and another had threatened to cut out his throat for no particular reason. These men lurked in shadows— behind cracked doors, and all regarded Emery with a predatory, aggressive attitude. And an alderman, for the God's sakes! Emery had presumed that the man would have held some order within his own chambers, some semblance of pride, but the man seemed hardly a notch above the other rabble in town. "'This letter here from Orem?' asked Bratner. "'Orin,' explained Emery. "'He's the Queen's bard.' This bit of information had no effect on the man whatsoever. He sniffed, snorted back what was a surprisingly large amount of phlegm, and continued. "'Well, he says we're to give you lodging,' the alderman said, with an unhappy emphasis. He leaned back in his leather chair, its springs moaning in protest. "'There's no place I can think of what we can store you, save the inn. 
and it isn't like we much get in the way of travelers through this part. Most of the time, folks skip Barnett altogether and go by the more picturesque towns like Vale or Garmentown. But I'll talk to Ab and see if we can't arrange something. Straining his heavy body forward again, the alderman poured himself another snifter brimming to the top. He made an offering gesture once more toward Emery, the third since he had arrived, but the bard shook his head politely yet again. He never touched alcohol of any sort. As a rule, the bards of Moor who sought the higher levels of the calling swore to a life of complete abstinence from any elements that would inhibit their gifts. Those with skill who did not abstain, but had control of their lives, tended to become popular performers singing alongside traveling merchant caravans or as part of playmakers' groups. And those with even less skill or for whom drink itself eventually became their calling, they had been known to descend from the chambers of the elite to seedy taverns or to the street, and from there, a sometimes unmerciful progression into the pauper's grave. Every apprentice had been taught the patterns of life choices, and Emery was not about to start gambling away his talent. Not yet, anyway. From what Emery had seen of Barnett, the alderman's office, though certainly sparse by Moorish or Queensland standards, was almost refined. At least some attempt had been made to impress. Alderman Bratner was quite fond of firearms, dozens of which ornamented the shelves, walls, and beams of the low ceilinged room. Emery knew next to nothing about firearms. He'd taken too few lessons in hunting from Zender before he'd been sent to Queensland, and even those guns were meant only for the simplest utility. The lines and decoration of Bratner's walls spoke both of quality and the power of intimidation. That would be excellent, Emery said. You said you were for more? Bratner asked again. Emery wondered just how long this repetitive interrogation would continue. He had answered all of Bratner's questions at least once, and yet this did not seem to satisfy the alderman. "'Yes, sir, from the eastern coast. My family are merchants in the dye business.' Bratner eyed Emery's threadbare attire without comment. "'I'll be straight with you, Bard,' he said, pausing to ease down some more brandy. "'People in Barnett aren't used to strangers. You talk funny.' You act funny, and, uh, do pardon me, but you look funny. I don't know what the Queen's thinking sending us a bard in times like these, but, uh, that's not here nor there. Thing is, I'm set to leave town tomorrow for the Aldermoot. Jeremiah, my deputy, will be in charge. And folks here tend to get a little rough around the edges when the Alderman's not around to keep the peace, if you know what I mean. He paused for a split second, then asked, Do you know how to shoot a gun? This question Emery had not heard before, and he jerked in startlement. "'Begging your pardon, sir, but bards do not engage in combat. We're peacemakers and diplomats, trained to help bring people together through song and law. What minimal training I have was simple subsistence shooting. I can shoot some small game if pressed, but when it comes to—' "'No,' Emery thought to himself. "'Best not go too far.' Being a stranger was bad enough, but a self-professed, helpless stranger was another matter altogether. An ounce of confidence was all that he clung to. "'You might want to consider getting a gun,' Bratner continued on, as if Emery hadn't said anything at all. "'Our gunsmith got himself shot a few months back. Not much of a recommendation, I know, but uh, he's laid up with the green rot in his shoulder, so most of our gunsmith business has gone over to Garmentown.' If you put in a little extra work during the day, Ab might consider lending you one of his. 
the at least two dozen or more firearms in his office gleamed quietly behind Bratner's smarmy smile, but he made no reference to them. If you've a little extra coin, you might be able to convince one of the farmhands to even sell you something. Bards were sent to their apprenticeships with no money. It was a test for them, to earn a living with their own skills. Emery had been at the top of his class at the academy, and his mentor, Zender, before he had died, had written a lengthy letter to the queen about his abilities. She had agreed to let him come to court. The day before Emery took the ship for Queensland, he found out that Zender had died. As such, the queen had taken his assignment into her own hands. But Emery, uncultured as he may have been in the ways of territory life, knew well enough to leave the mention of money or lack thereof out of conversation. He smiled. I'll be well enough along so long as I... Here's what I'll do, Ratner continued, once interrupting the bard mid-sentence again. He dug into his pocket and pulled out a palmful of mismatched change. Picking out two flonins, he tossed them over to the bard. Take these to the inn. It's six doors down with a big sign with a horseshoe on it. And you give this to Ab. Tell him I'll call on him in the morning that he should take care of your first night's stay. And hopefully, from then on, you'll be set up fine. How long do you expect to stay in Barnet? Emery took a deep breath. This time, he could not muster a smile. Until I'm called elsewhere, he responded, taking the uncomfortably warm coins in his hands. He paused. Thank you for your time, Alderman. I appreciate it. I would be most honored to sing a song for you, or if one in my repertoire does not fit the occasion, I could compose one. Bratner chuckled. I'm mostly deaf. Probably couldn't hear your singing clear enough, even if I lacked music. He reached up and twisted his ear, which Emery had not noticed before in the dim light under the man's lanky hair. It popped off his head, and he held it out, leaving a withered knob behind. The object in his hands was, in fact, made out of brass. He wheezed one last smile and said, Fortunately for us both, I don't. Inn was called the Silver Shield, but there was nothing remotely clear or gleaming about the place. Emery stared up at the heavy old sign, which was barely hanging on by its rusted hinges, creaking perilously in the breeze. The shoe depicted on the fading boards was not a particularly evocative image, just a darker curve accented by what looked like real nails hammered through. A young man was lighting the street lamps three doors down the narrow way, but he had yet to reach the shoe and so it was still cast in the dimming blue light of dusk. The shutters were drawn tight across the windows, so Emery had no idea what the place would look like from the inside. At the moment, he could hear the muted din of voices from behind the door. Taking a deep breath, he shouldered his guitar and felt in the bag lashed across his back for where he'd put his fiddle. Yes, all was still there. And then, for good measure, he checked his side, right under his arm. There was the relic of a knife Zender had given him, bone-handled and, Zender had said, at least two hundred years old. Regardless of its age, Emery seriously doubted he could get it out if the need arose. He had never practiced with it, shrinking from the knowledge that such an implement could kill, had killed, according to his old master. But still, the old weapon's presence was comforting. There was something of Zender in it, something he had left behind. 
Pushing open the shoes' doors with his hands, he was immediately met with a blast of sweaty, smoky air filled with the distinct pungency of unwashed men. His eyes began watering immediately in response to the smoke, and he stumbled half-blinded into a chair, nearly toppling over it in an attempt to make his way to the bar. A fire was roaring in the hearth, but the wood was still green and wet, and so it cast off more bluish smoke into the already dim room. The patrons, about thirty all told, took no notice of the stumbling bard as he made his way toward the bar. The floor was dirt, or else such filthy wood as to be half-rotted with it, and was littered with old food, discarded bones, and broken mugs. A trio of unkempt, wiry-haired mutts growled darkly at him as he passed, trying his best to look unconcerned, but unable to ignore the pricks of chicken flesh rising on his arms and back. Dirty, shadowed faces loomed at him from booths and corners, and he was hit with the sudden longing for the green hills of Moor, the running waters of the River Plea, and the warmth and hospitality of the local inns and taverns. Behind the bar stood a frightfully skinny man, with what looked like no more than four teeth in his sullen, downturned mouth. His hands and apron were grubby, covered with what appeared to be a combination of beer, blood, and an unrecognizable material that might have been lard, or something even worse. His face was drawn and sunken. His large, round eyes reminded Emery of a lizard. His greasy, graying hair, what was left of it, was tied back behind his head with a leather cord. Surprisingly, too, he was about Emery's height, which, considering the norm in the territories, was impressive. "'I'm looking after a man named Ab,' Emery said to him. "'That's me,' said Ab. He turned his head and screamed down the end of the bar. "'If you can't control yourself, Jim, I'll slit your throat and toss you out into the street myself!' Then he glanced placidly at the bard. "'I, uh,' said Emery. Startled by the innkeeper's rapid transformation from calm to fury and back again, I was sent here by Alderman Bratner. I'm the new bard. The new bard? Ab said, leaning on his hands and looking Emery up and down. Wasn't aware we had no one. I don't think you have had. Not for years, anyway. But the alderman's arranging for more permanent lodging for me before he leaves. He told me to give you this. Emery produced the two flonins and tried to smile though that faltered quickly. No sooner had he thought that he was getting the hang of things here in Barnet than he caught a glimpse of a woman out of the corner of his eye, sitting in the middle of a group of leering men. She was dressed, sort of, in a thin bodice that clung to her breasts and hips, and she had hitched up the bottom of one side of her skirt into her belt, revealing a long, but rather bruised and pasty leg. Emery had never seen a whore before, and he struggled to turn his eyes away from her. One of the men kept trying to snake his hand up under her skirt, but she playfully batted his hand away with a practiced coy laugh. He couldn't quite hear the laughter, but he could see something was missing behind the mask of her painted face. There was a hollowness there, as if she had gone somewhere else and was no longer inhabiting her own body. Ab, who seemed to have noticed Emery's staring eyes, knocked on the bar to get his attention. The inch folding at but I can get you a spot in the stables. It's dry and warm for the most part, though I can't promise the company will be much. But the alderman said, Emery began, horrified at the prospect of staying in a stable all night. Oh, feel free by all means to dispute my charges in my face, Bard. And while you're at it, why don't you go and call the alderman a cheat, too? That'll lighten up the mood a bit, sure to warm the townsfolk to you. Now I'm offering you a place to sleep. 
Otherwise, you can try your luck with the coy dogs, Ab said, raising his squirrely eyebrows. Oh, certainly, Emery said, mustering what was left of his self-possession. What on earth would his mother, the daughter of the chief of Galbreni, say if he ever found out that her beloved youngest son had just been turned out into a stable in the middle of the territories? It felt like a terrible joke. He glanced around the room, hoping to see a familiar face break out into a smile and announce that the joke had been on him after all. Go back out where you came from, take a quick left, and go down the alley. You'll see the stables there. Feel free to take your pick of the stalls if you need to leave sudden, Abs added, a satisfied grin spreading on his face. Though as I hear it, Hayloft's a good spot too, so as you can see the thieves coming. Once outside, Emery was glad to be out in the air again, at very least. He may have been relegated to the stables like a common tinker, but he'd rather smell horse shite than the odors of the shoe, that was for certain. There was a cool breeze, and the lamps flickered slightly in the street under their glass cases as one. At least there was light. From his standpoint, he could see down both sides of the street. There was a grocer's, a tax store, and down at the end, a livery. The street was deserted for the most part, and the alderman's residence showed no light at all in spite of the early hour. Up above Barnet, the stars were bright, winking down at Emery. He felt momentarily reassured. He could recognize the constellations, the asp with her head reared, the scorpion ready to strike, and his favorite, the mare. He always thought she'd be brown, and he wasn't sure why. It was a plain color for a horse, but he remembered songs about the horse goddess, songs that the islanders only rarely sung, and in his mind she'd always been brown. But somehow, that didn't make her any less beautiful. It only made her more realistic. For all his romantic tendencies, Emery thought goddesses, if they ever existed at all, would have been of the people, something easily blended in. He hummed a few bars of the Song of Rhea, the meter was odd. It was an old song in translation, but he always liked the melody. After, he took a deep breath, pulling his guitar tight across his shoulders. He had doubted Queen Malus's intentions with him in the first place. Now he was starting to wonder if he'd ever leave Barnett at all. He knew bards required testing, and he knew he was soft. He never tried to be anything other than he was. But this was getting ridiculous. Sleeping in a stable? The light on the street dimmed to shadows as Emery walked slowly down the alleyway, and his pulse quickened. He could hear the animals, but soon the starlight and moonlight were his only guides. A dappled goat was tethered to the side of the stable, and he ducked his head under the low lintel. From the sound of his feet, the hay hadn't been changed in some time. He walked slowly, knowing all too well how slippery the leavings of livestock could be. A few of the horses grunted and snuffled as he entered. Emery was not terribly familiar with horses in spite of his fondness for them. He hummed a few more bars of the Song of Rhea in hopes it would calm them down for a bit. "'I'm just a friend,' he said softly, reaching out into the dark to meet the velvety nose of one of the horses. "'I promise if I had any food I'd give you some,' he said, removing his now slobbered hand and wiping it on his shirt. With a little effort, Emery managed to find a lantern and leaned up against the side of one of the empty stalls. He rummaged in his rucksack and eventually produced a few matches, 
The first did not work, but the second kindled. The warm yellow light was welcoming in the close quarters, but it cast eerie shadows on the horses' faces as they leaned over the sides of their stalls to view the new visitor. Emery cleared a corner of the hay in the stall he'd chosen and put down the lantern on the dirt. There weren't many clean spots to put down his instruments, so he decided to forego the use of his duster. He emptied his pockets and put their contents, his dagger, and the instruments atop it for the time being. He'd have to sleep near his belongings for fear someone might steal them. Although the more he thought about it, the less likely it seemed that anyone would bother to steal his instruments. He wondered if there had ever been music in Barnett at all. He'd finished his rations that morning and had nothing to eat. The trough had a little water, but there were flies buzzing ominously over the water, and in the limited light, Emery did not want to see what might lurk beneath the surface. So he took out his guitar. He typically carried it simply slung across his back for easy retrieval. Of all the dozen-some-odd instruments he knew how to play, the guitar was his favorite. She, for of course, an object of such beauty as this, had to be a she, was made of rosewood and eucalyptus, a native plant in the region Zender had lived. Zender had shaped the wood with Emery's help, and designed the guitar to fit him precisely. Emery had chosen the decorations along the fretboard, inlaid mother-of-pearl, representing the waxing of the moon. A few strums and Emery winced. The strings were painfully out of tune. Having a near-perfect ear, Emery just couldn't stomach anything less than precise. He fiddled with the tuning pegs at the top until he was satisfied. Stopping a moment, he felt into his pocket. Yes, his spare strings were still there. He'd carried them all the way from Moore, and as far as he knew, were his only change. He'd been composing a song on the road, a sad lament in the tradition of the territories. It seemed laughable now, considering no one even wanted to hear him sing. But he had liked the melody, the tenseness as the chords pulled and pushed in and out of dissonance. The minor mode he found haunting, and somehow comforting. It was C-sharp minor, the same as his favorite song, one Zender had written. Maybe it was that. The chords just reminded him of home, and his best friend and mentor, even if he had left that world. He hadn't words to the song yet, but as he sat in the company of horses and goats, a few words began to form in his mind, and then spill out from his lips.
A squeak and a crash broke Emery out of his musical trance. The horses nickered, and he saw the form of a young woman at the opening of the stable, her short brown hair cast into her eyes. The poor thing looked frightened out of her mind, her eyes wide and her dirty face. Emery's heart dropped to see her. She was half-starved, and tracks of pale skin shone through the dirt on her cheeks. She had been crying. "'Oh, forgive me, sir,' she said crouching down to retrieve what she had dropped, a tin plate and some bread and cheese from what Emery could see. Hush, it's all right, Emery said, feeling his heart twist with pity. The girl's wrists were purpled all the way around. Someone had been quite rough with her. Her voice was high and trembling as she tried to explain herself. My father sent me here to send you some food. She drew a quivering breath and stood. But it's all covered in shot now. I'm sorry. Please don't worry about that. Are you all right? I won't hurt you, you know, he said, standing slowly. He towered over her nonetheless, and she cowered from him. I'm fine, she said, with an attempt at a smile. It was a ghastly impression of one, more of a grimace than anything, displaying her ill-cared-for teeth and chapped lips more than anything. I'm Emery, he said putting down his guitar gently. He held out his hands, low, and what he hoped would be interpreted as a sign of peace, palms up, fingers splayed. I'm just a bard? A musician? The girl wiped her eyes on her sleeve of her ratty dress and nodded. My name's Sarah. Ab's your father? She nodded. Emery looked at her a little closer. She couldn't have been more than fifteen, he thought but it was difficult to tell in her pitiable state. She was so thin that he could see her collarbones at the top of her dress, jutting out under the fabric. Her cheeks were sunken and dark, with the light of the lantern reflecting the tears she shed. "'Do pardon me, but you seem quite distressed,' Emery said. "'It was your song,' Sarah said quickly, wrapping her arms around her and hugging them to herself. "'I'd never heard anything so beautiful before.' I just... it sent me to thinking. You ain't from here, are you? Emery tried not to laugh, considering the sober situation. No, I'm from the Isle of Moore, a bit north of here and across the White Sea. But you were singing about territories, girls, she said. About them not being true. And it ain't our fault, you know. It ain't like we have much of a choice, those of us who ain't alder class. Emery was embarrassed. The words had not been kind, that was true, but he had felt betrayed, and his form of betrayal took the form of the one thing he most certainly could never have, a lover. I didn't mean it to be about anyone real, Emery tried, wondering how easily he could explain the nuances of metaphor to the girl. I was just making things up to have words to the tune. It's the only way we can make money for our families, she said putting a hand to her face. But it don't mean we lack it, you know. Pardon? Emery felt as if he'd missed something entirely. 
Sleeping with men, that is, she said with a slight shrug. With girls so scarce, well, men pay well, you know. Is that why your father sent you to me? he asked, feeling his stomach lurch in his belly. Sarah shrugged again. If you want. No, of course not. Emery was horrified, not for himself so much, but the poor girl. She approached the matter as casually if she were talking about baking bread. Why? Is there something the matter with me? she asked. I know I ain't much to look at. No, no, it's not that, Emery said. You're lovely, but you do this? You sleep about? Sarah bit down on her bottom lip. Well, not yet. You were to be my first attempt. Dad's told me a bit of what's supposed to happen, and, and he showed me a bit. She approached him a few bold steps and raised her eyebrows in suggestion. Gods, I thought that was outlawed more than a decade ago, Emery said, shaking his head to try and straighten his thoughts. As she approached, he backed up. Eventually, he hit the wall of the stall. It was, but ain't no law here in Barnet, not like you'd expect. See, my father's employed by the alderman. He takes the wages I make, see? And Dad gets paid some of that. It's just a job. It's not just a job, Emery said, taking her by the shoulders and keeping her as much of the distance as he could. Her shoulders were knobbed, like old beechwood. It's not anything you should do. Why don't you settle down with someone in town? Have a child. I'm sure there's plenty of men looking for that. Tears flooded her eyes and she dropped her head. Ain't profitable that way, don't you know? Dowries being what they are, there's no profit. If I get some coin for each time, there's no limit. Sure, I might have a child or two. Hopefully, she said, perking up a little, smiling at the thought of a child. But no one out here cares about bloodlines. A bastard's just as good as nothing when you ain't alder class. Emery felt sick. He wanted to take her into his arms suddenly and get her far out of Barnett. He'd take her back to Moor and feed her proper. He could never marry her, of course, having taken the vows of the Barding Order, but he could find someone for her. But you could run away, he said. You could run away, and you could find something else. Sarah, get away from him! The innkeeper had appeared at the end of the stall, a long rifle balanced in his hand. Emery staggered back in surprise, narrowly missing treading over his guitar. He caught the railing at the back of the stable and felt his shoulder twist at an unnatural angle. Looking up just in time, Emery saw Ab grab Sarah by the hair and then smack her across the face. She fell to the filthy floor and did not move. "'How dare you threaten my daughter!' Ab yelled, approaching Emery with the gun. He reeked of alcohol, tinged with a high, acrid tang of vomit. "'She was delivering me some food,' Emery said, as cool as he could. The gun was beyond intimidating, and the man was drunk with rage and alcohol. You lie! He hadn't been prepared for the punch, still. He couldn't actually recall being punched, save for when he was little. The innkeeper's fists were like steel, and Emery felt his jaw crunch against the impact, and his vision went filled with black little spots. He completely lost his footing and fell down to the ground of the stable the innkeeper on top of him. Then the innkeeper was punching him again, the gun apparently forgotten for the moment. Emery flailed, unable to get the man off of him in spite of the continued beating. 
His heart was thumping like a wild bird in his chest, and he feared he would be beaten to death if he didn't do something. As another punch came on his jaw, his teeth jammed together with a clack, tearing the inside of his cheek against them. His mouth was filled with blood. Emery thought for a fleeting second that perhaps if he played dead, the man would leave him alone. But no, Ab was gaining on him. Drunk as he was, he was strong. Taking another punch to the head, Emery then jabbed one of his long legs up, catching the innkeeper just to the left of his crotch. The innkeeper groaned and his hands went slack. Suddenly, Emery had an advantage. They rolled, and now Emery was atop the innkeeper, staring down into the man's wild-eyed face, his cheeks slick with spittle and vomit. Emery knew he would die if he didn't do something. By no means trained as a warrior, he did know how to read people. And Ab meant to kill him. Simple as that. Up came Ab's hands, tightening around Emery's neck then. It had only been a split second of thought, but too much. All thought of peace was gone. Reaching into his pocket for some kind of weapon, he felt the guitar string. It was one of the thicker gauge ones. He may not have had an edge on Ab with experience, but he did have longer arms. He managed to pull the string tight in his hands, and as his breath began to wheeze from his lungs, he pushed down, the E-string pressing into Ab's throat. The rage filled him, turning his world red. Thrusting all of his weight and height, his strong musician's hands bearing down on both sides of the innkeeper's throat until his face was blue. Ab's grip on Emery's throat weakened. Then his stringy arms trembled and fell away altogether. But still, Emery kept pushing as blood flowed out of Ab's mouth and down his cheeks, his arms shaking violently with the effort. Slowly, his breath returned to him, and then came a rush of clarity and horror. A gunshot and the sudden spray of blood across his face startled Emery out of the last of his days. Sarah had stood up, walked to point-blank range, and shot Ab in the head. Her face was blank, and a small gun shook in her hands. "'Gods!' Emery said, his voice hollow in his own head. "'Gods!' "'He's dead!' "'Take this,' Sarah said, thrusting the gun at him. "'It only has three shots left. Put it in your boot. The alderman's horse is bridled up and ready to go. He's leaving early. They'll be asking questions. But he's—' Sarah kicked some straw over Ab's head and then spit on him. She pointed to the collection of instruments. "'Take those and ride. Go north. There's some caves there. I'll—' She paused, glancing at the back of the stable. I'll meet you, if you'll have me. You can take me away. Of course, but why? The sound of the roused bar patrons met their ears. Sarah was breathing heavily. She helped him, and like dressing a child, helped to strap his guitar on, coiled the bloody string and stuffed it into his duster pocket, and then blew out the lantern. She led him by the hand down the rows of stables and into the first one. Emery could barely make out the lines of the animal, but she was right. The horse had been saddled. They'll be mad, but I can deal with them. She sounded excited, relieved almost. But I'll meet you tomorrow. She took his hand and, hesitating, kissed it. Emery felt faint as he scrambled up the side of the horse. He wasn't even certain he knew which way was north. The little gun was still in his hand, but he clumsily managed to mount all the same. Sarah opened the stable gate and slapped the horse in the rear. 
The night air was cold and crisp, and the stars shone down, winking as they always did. But Emery rode out to the end of the alley, reined the powerful animal to the right, and spurred him ahead. He bolted out across the front of the shoe and right through a milling crowd of confused men, scattering them. Thundering away out of the end of the lit street and turning into the dark open night, a glimmer of something that might have been joy emerged through the shroud of fear that clung to him. Gunshots rang out from behind him. Emery Roy rode and rode toward the dark hills like the devils in a new and personal hell were quickly closing the gap behind him. 